So I do hope you will join me in that passage we read, Jeremiah 21, 29, rather, Jeremiah 29, because I want you to see some things that are in that chapter. Well, I said earlier, I welcome you. I want to do that again, just quickly. I'm glad you're here. Glad we get to study together, to worship, just to be together as part of God's family, celebrate what He's done for us in Christ. I was thinking during the singing of that song uh, how that the, the very active gathering is in some ways a kind of a, a subversive act. It, at least it has been historically for the last 2,000 years. Lots of, you know, lots of countries even to this day, certainly for the last 2,000 years, lots of, lots of kingdoms of the world have said Christians can assemble because they know that the act of assembling is, is, is an act of saying, hey, this, this country, this kingdom is not mine. It's, it's not mine. That's not my God. My God, my God we celebrate every, every Sunday in the communion. What we're going to talk about for the next little bit is how do we live as Christians when we're in exile? How do we, how do we, how do, we do that? And we're going to go back and study this period of history for a few minutes where God's people were actually physically, geographically, politically exiled to a place where they were not home. Let me give you some background for this. Uh, just, just a little bit of history. Some of you like history, some of you some of you don't. Uh, history is important for us to understand certain things about the Bible, certainly. When we're reading Jeremiah, it's important for you to know what's going on in the context here of Jeremiah, right? Uh, God's, people are, God's people are in Judah, all right? So just politically, geographically, they're living around Jerusalem, basically today, you know, where, where Jerusalem is. They're living in that southern part of that area, Jerusalem. It's called Judah. You know, they've been there for a long time. Uh, God led them there a long time before under the leadership of Moses and then Joshua, you know. And they established their, their home there. That was the land God had promised them. He promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they took the land. They lived there for a long time. But it got to a point where they had completely forsaken God. They they'd said to God, we don't, we don't care what you want. We're not going to keep the law anymore. So God had said to them, over and over again, if you do not keep the covenant, I'm going to take you out of the land. You're going to be exiled to, a, to another place. They disobeyed that. They didn't care, really. So during Jeremiah's day, it's, it's almost there. Like it's, it's, it's on, They're on the cusp of going to this foreign land called Babylon. And Jeremiah is teaching them and preaching to them and preparing them for that day. But then the time comes, and the book of 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament tells us about this. God raised up this nation of Babylon. Their king was Nebuchadnezzar. You heard of Nebuchadnezzar, right? God sent Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem, and, and over a period of some 20, 17 years, you know, um, a little bit more than that, yeah, about, about 20 years, about, a period of about 20 years, Three different times these Babylonians came against Jerusalem and Judah and, and took them away, ultimately destroying the city. That's what, when I, when I got the word exile on the screen, that's what I'm talking about. They were taken from their homeland and they were moved over to a place called Babylon. They were in exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. The city was destroyed. 
The temple was leveled, nothing there. Their homes were destroyed. And they moved away to Babylon. And, and it was during this time that this period of time lasted for about 70 years. They were in exile. Man, they were struggling. They hated it. They, their, their, their entire existence had been around the land, a, a, a geographical area. Land, right? With their cities and their homes and their families and all that. And now it had been wrested away from them and they were in exile. And it was a hard time for them. That's what Jeremiah is talking about in the book of Jeremiah. He's talking to these people, getting them ready for it. He's saying, it's coming. There's nothing you can do at this point to keep it from coming. It's coming, and here's how you're going to live during that time. That's what we mean. That's what the Bible means when it talks about this exile, this captivity. But what I want you to see, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this, and I hope you'll, I hope you'll see some of these connections because this is, this is pretty cool. I mean, this is really neat. And I want you to see... For the next, I don't know, five, ten minutes, we're going to talk about this exile theme, all right? As a, as a theme, a reoccurring theme, it comes up again and again in the Bible. Here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen, or you can turn back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and I want to show you something that you may not have known, may not have seen this before. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? You remember that story, right? Adam and Eve were told, we're going to come back to Jeremiah 29, I'm, we'll make our way back there, but... You remember the story of Adam and Eve? God said, all right, here's your beautiful place, garden, the garden of Eden. Eden means delight. I mean, this is an awesome place. They were home. This is great. Everything was provided for them. There was no hostility, no, there was no sin. You know, they were perfectly at home there. Perfect relationship with God, with each other, with the animals, with the planet, with the world. It was, it was a great, great place. But God had said, you know, you can... You can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree that's in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you'll die. So God had, God had told them that. Well, Genesis 3 comes and they, they, didn't, they didn't do it. You know this story. So after they ate, Eve ate, Eve gave to Adam, he ate, they both ate. God comes to them. And at the end of Genesis 3, I want you to listen to this language here. At the end of this chapter, God said to man, verse 22, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out. All right, if you're there with me in Genesis 3.23, notice this language. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so notice that language. He sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. Verse 24, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim. What I want you to notice, now, you're going to have to listen carefully here because this may be something you've never heard before, you've never noticed before. But if you'll stick with me for the next five minutes or so, I think you'll, be, I think you'll agree with me that this is really cool. All right? This is really neat. How this theme of exile comes up over and over again. And what I want to show you is that this idea of God's people being at home and then they're, they're being banished from their home or they're being removed from their home to a land that's hostile to them and their, their, their ongoing desire to go back home, that theme occurs over and over again intentionally in the Bible, not just by coincidence, 
but rather the language that the Bible is written in, these words were chosen specifically so that you and I years later could come back and read this and we would have this aha moment where we're like, wow, that is so neat. Uh, it's, it's neat how this theme occurs again and again. Okay, so when the Bible says that God took Adam and Eve and he banished them or he, he, he sent them out, that is the same language. The Old Testament mostly was written in Hebrew, right? Written in Hebrew. Those same words are used later on to talk about Judah's being sent away to Babylon. That's not a coincidence. The same kind of language. Adam and Eve are sent away from their home, this delightful garden. And where are they sent? Well, it just says they're sent to the east, right? He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, there's this emphasis on the east, right? Going to the east. Now, I want you to notice, we're going to go four. Lots of stuff happens. Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother. You know, Genesis 5, you got a bunch of genealogies. Genesis 6, things are getting really bad. Sin's all over the planet. God sends the flood. Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And then you come to Genesis 10, more genealogy. And then you get to Genesis 11. Still with me? Look at this. Genesis chapter 11. Verse 2 says, As people migrated from the, where? From the east. That's pretty important. Migrated from the east. They found the plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there. They're going to take these bricks. They're going to build this tower. You go on down, they're going to, let's make ourselves a city and a tower. Verse 4, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Sounds kind of like the kind of language they used back when he was kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. Verse 7, come let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord dispersed them. Do you see that? The Lord, verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called what? <coughs> Babel. You know what city this was, by the way? You, you kind of see the similarity here. You know what city this is? This is Babylon. This is, this is about, you see what's happening here? Adam and Eve are at home in their land, their beautiful, delightful garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And then what happens? They sin, and as a result of that, they are expelled from the garden toward the east. And where do they end up? Where do, where do, where do human beings end up? This story from Genesis 1 to 11 has always been heading to the east. And it's going from Eden, and it's ending up where? In Babylon. So it's interesting that at the very beginning of the Bible, you got this story of being at home, exiled to Babylon, right? Exiled to Babylon, and yet God acts in Babylon, and he disperses them. He, he disperses them over the face of the earth so that they might populate the planet, you know, be a blessing to the world. So you've got that story at the very beginning. I hope you see that it's not just, I'm not just coming up with this out of the blue. The language suggests this. And you've got this pattern that happens again and again. Now I'm going to come to us, all right? We, if you're wondering, I don't, I don't care about history and this, this and yeah. Okay, it may be cool for somebody who, who obsesses over stuff like this. But, but I want you to see that this has a lot to say to us, okay? Now, let me show you something else. Genesis 12, next chapter, Genesis 12. 
Um, you, you may remember this. Some of you may remember this. Um, Abra- Abraham, he was called Abram before he became Abraham. You know, Abram was from a little place called Ur. Ur, you are. Ur of the Chaldees. You know where Ur was, by chance? Geographically speaking, you may know. Ur is in Babylon. Well, it's not Babylon yet, but it's not officially called Babylon. But Ur, the Chaldees, Ur is in this region that's later on, long time after this, is going to become, it's going to become Babylon. Same area. So we're talking about, I mean, if, you, if you're interested in this sort of thing, geographically speaking, right now, we're talking about Iraq. We're talking about the Tigris and Euphrates River where they empty into the Persian Gulf, right over there. That's where Babylon was. That's where Ur was. So that's where Abraham is. God says, I want you to leave there. This is kind of like a reverse exile in a way, at least as far as Babylon's concerned. God says to Abraham, he's in Babylon, Ur. He says, I want you to leave there. I want you to leave. I'm going to take you out of Babylon, and I'm going to take you to a new home. I'm going to give you a land. So Abraham leaves his, ultimately, he leaves his family, leaves his home, leaves Babylon, leaves Ur, and he travels, and he ultimately finds his way to Canaan. But he's never home there. It's never really his. But nonetheless, you've got this same kind of theme that's reoccurring, and Babylon factors in in some way. He leaves it, and he goes over to Canaan, which is this land that God had promised him, right? And you've got that, that kind of thing, a leaving and a, and a finding home. But, but, but Abraham never really settles down there. He never really feels at home. He's always, he calls himself a sojourner, a nomad. In exile, that language is going to pop up again here in a minute. So you got that? You got that thing. By the way, you know, after Abraham got into the land and God made this promise to him, Abraham decided he wanted to go down to Egypt. And he left and he went down to Egypt and he was kind of exiled in Egypt for a little while. And then he ultimately, God sent him back to, back to the land. So you got this like mini exile going on there. But you got these stories happening again and again. Remember the story in the Old Testament of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob had a bunch of kids, a bunch of sons, mostly. One daughter, 12 sons. And you follow that story in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, and you'll find that one of those sons, the, the dad loved more than the others. His name was Joseph, made him the coat of many colors, all that stuff. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was favored. And so they took Joseph and they sold him to some slave traders. And they took Joseph, these slave traders took Joseph down to Egypt. So the family's in the land of Canaan. They're at home in the land. Joseph is exiled down to Egypt. And then the whole family joins them down there, and they end up in Egypt. Stay with me now. They they end up down there in Egypt, right? The whole family's down there. And then they become slaves, and they are exiled down in Egypt. They're down there away from their land, away from where God intended them to be, but they're down there in Egypt and they become slaves. So God sends Moses down there 400 years later and Moses rescues them and leads them back to the land of Canaan. So they had been in Canaan, they went down to Egypt, which in the Bible is sometimes symbolically called Babylon. They, they went down to Egypt and God led them back to the land of Canaan. We could spend a long time talking about this because you got these stories that that come up again and again. But, but, but the, where this ultimately goes is Judah is in the land, and then our story is they go down to Babylon, and after 70 years they come back. But this idea, this theme, this theme just comes up again and again. I'm going to circle back to that in a minute. 
because I want you to see how this relates to us today. And I'll show you some language in the New Testament that will convince you. I think if you're not convinced yet that this, this matters to us today. So this, this theme comes up again and again. But here's one of the things that they wrestled with. How do you live in exile? How do you live when you're not at home? What, according to what kind of principle do you live? Let's go back to Jeremiah 29, the, the text that Jeffrey read for us at the beginning of our worship time a few minutes ago. Listen to this, Jeremiah 29. So he's talking to them while they're in exile. They're living in Babylon, a long way from home. And, and, and by the way, there's the struggle with, with them. There's the struggle with the exiles because they were kind of like two extremes that they had. They had some prophets, some, some guys over here telling them, now what you need to do is you need to rebel against Babylon. You need to start a revolt. You need to gather people together and you need to, you need to you know, try, to, try to revolt against Babylon and get out of there, right? But then you had... You had some, this other kind of thing that was, no, you don't need to do that. You just need to try to become Babylonian. You need to forget about your heritage, forget about your real home, and just become Babylonian. Give up on your God and worship the Babylonian gods. Just, just sell out completely to the Babylonians. What I want to suggest to you is that Jeremiah, he wants us to take what I would call a middle ground here. They are living in exile, but he does not want them to become full-on Babylonians. Though they do, in certain ways, conform themselves to the Babylonian world, right? Now listen to, again, Jeremiah 29, with that kind of context, this is what Jeremiah says. This is what God says through Jeremiah. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, what do you do? What do we do while we're in exile? This is what God says. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have, have kids, have sons and daughters. Hey, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may give you some grandchildren. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, you're going to be there a while. Right? You're going to be there a while. You're going to be there long enough. If you think, hey, I'm only going to be here for, for a year or two. I'm not going to build a house. I'm not going to build a garden, plant a garden. I'm not going to have kids here. I'm not going to get married here. I'm not going to have grandchildren here. No, God says, hey, build a house, plant a garden, start raising a family. You're going to be here a little while. Okay? So what, what do we do while we're in exile? Well, Jeremiah says, you might as well get settled in because you're going to be here a little bit. And uh, I got some stuff here I want you to do while you're there. So he goes on, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what does he say? You're living in Babylon. Don't be hostile. Don't be intentionally hostile to Babylon. Hey, build your houses, get married, have kids, plant some gardens, Find a way to support your family. Have some grandkids and, and be a blessing to the city where you are. Seek the welfare of the city. Be good to Babylon. Get involved in the city council. Get involved in the local community groups. Be a blessing to the city where you are. You're going to be there a little bit. And you don't have to oppose everything Babylonian just because it's Babylonian. Become a Babylonian to an extent. That's where you are. Now, 
he would go on to say, you don't completely become Babylonian. Let me, let me give you an example of this. You remember the story of Daniel? You remember the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Does that sound familiar? Remember, remember Daniel? You know where Daniel lived? Daniel lived in Babylon. Okay, And do you remember something about Daniel's life? Daniel was, man, he was in the government. He was, he was high up. Daniel was, was a, a very talented guy, and, and the king of Babylon recognized him. He put him in a position of prominence, and Daniel rose up pretty high. He was doing well in Babylon. But there came a time where they told Daniel, all right, part of this whole deal is you cannot pray to your God anymore. And Daniel said, okay, I can become Babylonian to an extent, but there comes a time when Babylon asks me to do some things I cannot do or asks me to stop doing some things I'm going to keep doing. And they told Daniel, you can't pray to any God except for the king of Babylon. And Daniel said, I'm sorry, I'm not that Babylonian. He said, essentially he said, I am a child of God God is my king, and the king of Babylon is not my king. Not ultimately. I am a child of God. And so you know what Daniel did? Daniel prayed to God. Threw him in the den of lions, if you remember that story. Threw him in the den of lions. Daniel basically said to the king, you know, God may save my life. Uh, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They also, kind of like Daniel, they were, they were successful guys. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were some Jews. They were living down in Babylon, and, and, um, and they were Babylonian to an extent. There came a time where they said, you've you got to bow down to this false, this false idol, this big golden image that the king had set up. You've got to bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, I'm not that Bible, we're not that Babylonian. We're not going to do that because God says we can't do that. I am ultimately, we are ultimately children of God. And we are only going to worship him. And so they said, we're not going to do that. Now, God may choose, they, they said, we're going to throw you into the, Really hot fire, remember? Kill you. And they said, well, you got to do what you got to do. God may choose to save us. He may choose not to save us. It doesn't really matter to us. We're not going to forget who we are just because we're living in Babylon. You see, I think it's pretty, pretty cool. The way they handled this situation is what they did. They sought the, the welfare of the city. Daniel was working in the government of all places, working in the Babylonian government. What was he doing? I'm convinced Daniel was doing what Jeremiah told him to do. And that is, he was doing the best he could in a bad situation to seek the welfare of Babylon. But he did not forget that the king of Babylon was not his ultimate king. Seek the welfare of the city. But don't become full-on Babylonian. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who your God is. Look at this. Remember I said to you earlier that this theme of exile and return of home, exile, and, and longing for home is, is a theme that is repeated over and over in the Bible? What I want to suggest to you is that it's used not only over and over again in the Bible, but the theme itself is used to frame the entire Bible story. It's, it's used like like this idea of bookends to unite everything in the Bible in one cohesive story that helps us understand who we are. Now, I want to read you a couple of, couple of verses here. And what I'm going to show you is that what the New Testament writers did, what we read from Jesus, about Jesus, and what we read from some of the writers in the New Testament is that we 
are in a similar situation to the exiles. We have been exiled. We're living in exile. And I'm going to go to 1 Peter. You may turn there or you may choose just to listen. I'm going to read you about three or four verses from the book of 1 Peter. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter intentionally uses language of exile to talk to Christians. Now, they weren't exiled, not in the sense of like political exiles. They were home. This is where they had been raised. But he says, you are exiled, not geographically, but you are exiled in the sense that you're living almost like you're in a foreign land. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What? What exile? They were, lit, they were home. I mean, they, they had been, they were born and raised up there in Cappadocia. Right? They'd been there for a while. What's he talking about exile? Well, he's using this theme that I mentioned to you earlier, this reoccurring theme to help the Christians in this part of the world make some sense of what they were having to face and how they needed to reconcile this tension between living in a foreign land, as it were, and being children of God when everybody around you is telling you, you need to, you need to worship the emperor. You need to go ahead and become full-on Roman because Rome's in charge. You need to become a Roman. They were like, well, I don't know. And Peter's helping them understand. Maybe you can take something from the way God's people in the Old Testament lived when they were in exile to help explain how you ought to live. Uh, two more. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as, a, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't give in to all these, these ungodly ways that people around you are living. You remember, you are in exile. Now listen to this, 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. At the end of his letter, Peter says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Did you notice that? Peter says, talks about Babylon. You know how long it had been since Babylon had been a city? Centuries. He's not talking about Babylon. He's talking about the principle here. And if you, if you look in the book of Revelation, you'll see the very last book, when Rome is still in charge, that John talks a lot about Babylon, but he's using it as a metaphor for the kingdoms of the earth who, who um, align themselves against God. And we have to live in Babylon. And we got to figure out how we live in Babylon. You guys still with me? Well, this is a little bit different from, maybe it's kind of a new kind of idea. What I'm suggesting to you is, to us as a church, to us Christians, is we're in exile, and we've got to figure out how to live here. Sometimes we get off base on this. Sometimes we, we do what I, what, I, what I would call, we, uh, we kind of compromise, and we become... We become Babylonians. We become like everybody else. 
We, we, we have the same gods as the Babylonians sometimes. That's the temptation at least. That's what a lot of them did. They, became, they forgot who they were. Hey, once you've been in Babylon for a while, it's hard to think you're not a Babylonian, you know. They forgot they were children of God. They forgot who their king was. They started to think that the king of Babylon was their king. And a lot of Christians through the years have kind of bought into that same thing. They forget, hey, we're just exiles here. We serve a different kind of God. What I'm suggesting to you is this. As Christians, we recognize we live here in America. We live in America. I want to I say a couple things here. I want you to hear. Don't take me out of context, all right? It's in the context of a lot of words that I'm saying today. And so interpret this in the context of this whole sermon. You and I are not full-on Americans. We're not. And I think a temptation, there's a lot of pressure under the guise of patriotism for us to buy into this thing that we are... Like America, that's our identity. That's who we are. I am an American. I'm proud to be. We sing it, right? I'm proud to be. You got the tune in your head. I'm proud to be an American, right? I don't know. A little uncomfortable with that. I mean, not completely, but a little bit. Because I don't think we ought to be full-on Babylonians. You know? And I think sometimes under, under the, the cloak of patriotism, we can be convinced and we can come to believe that we, this is our identity. I am an American and proud of it. You know, God and country sort of thing. I think we've got to be careful with that as Christians. I think we've got to be really careful with that. There's nothing wrong with being proud in some sense. There's nothing wrong with, I, I, man, I think about this. Whenever I leave the, leave the country to go on a short-term mission trip, mission trip or whatever, Man, after I've been gone for 10 or 12 days, and I, when, that, when that plane lands in Atlanta or Birmingham or wherever, and I get out, I'm, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I like it here, you know? But I don't want to like it here too much because this is not my home, you know? I want to like it, but I don't want to like it so much that I can't be critical of it. And sometimes when you, become, when, you, when you say critical things about America, people interpret that as being not patriotic, and I don't think that's true. Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others, they were very critical of Babylon, right? They were. They said these things are not right about Babylon. But at the same time, they said seek the welfare of Babylon. You see the tension here? You live in Babylon, you seek the welfare of where you are, but you don't become Babylonian. You remember who you are. And so we, we think about this as Christians. We think, I live here in America. In some sense, I am an American. But I, I remind myself every day that I am not going to buy into this whole thing. I'm not going to be so, so immersed in this country that that becomes who I am because that's not who we are. We're God's people. And, and, and the president of this country... It's not my king. doesn't matter which party he is. It's not my king. never will be my king. I don't care if I agree with him or not. Not my king. My king is sitting on his throne. Your king is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. And so as, as, as God's people, we can be critical. 
while at the same time we work, we get on city councils maybe, maybe we join community groups, we get involved in community, we get involved in the educational system perhaps, we're involved in, in maybe inner city, or we're doing what we can in Hoover and Birmingham and Shelby County and Jefferson County to make this, make this, make our counties, make our cities better, make our country better. You know, we do that. We seek the welfare of the city. So it's, I like, um, there's this guy named um, Joseph Christopher Smith. No, Joseph Smith Christopher. Get that confused because he's got a hyphenated last name with a first name and a last name. Joseph Smith Christopher. And, and here's, the, here's the phrase he coined. I think he coined this. He says, we are loyal subversives. I hope you'll hang on to that. We are loyal subversives, or we are loyally subversive. And I, and I like, I think, what he means by that. And that is that we as Christians, we're loyal, but not when Babylon says, you bow down to this God. I'm not going to be loyal to that. I'm not going to become a nationalist. I'm not going to do it. Because God is my God. I'm not going to bow down at, at, the, at, the, at the feet of your God of, um, of, of, of gender expressions, of sexuality. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to seek the welfare of this country. I'm going to seek the welfare of Birmingham and Hoover. But when, 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 when we get pressure to conform our convictions to the, to the gods of the world, whether it is sexuality, gender identity, nationalism, political preference, um, killing our unborn children, when we are put in positions where we have to choose, we're going to choose to be Christians, no matter what. We seek the welfare, but we're subversive. We're subversive because our identity is in Christ, and that's going to call us, that's going to lead us to live according to a kind of ethic that is subversive. And so we don't bow down at the, at the feet of the idol of consumerism. Our identity isn't bound up in how much stuff we get, how much stuff we accumulate. We're not going to bow down at any of the false gods of Babylon. We're just not going to do it. So we've got to remind ourselves. And that's why I was talking about um, Lord's Supper at the beginning of this, I think. mentioning Lord's Supper is a reminder for us. Uh, and I'm glad we take it every, every Sunday, every, every Sunday. Because we need constant reminders that's why the Lord's Supper is a subversive act when you do it right. It's not just taking a little pinch of bread and a little, little sip of grape juice. What that, what that table means, what that supper means is, my king is Jesus, your king is Jesus. And uh, that's why, the, that's why when, when hostile powers get in, get in control, whether it is um, ancient Rome or North Korea or whatever, they forbid Christians from getting together in a group to take communion. And, I, and, and, and to an extent, I would agree with that, given their, given their convictions. I wouldn't want a group of people getting together every week either, perhaps. If I agreed with their ideology, I wouldn't want a group of Christians getting together, gathering around a table, because around that table they remind themselves, we are Christians. That's who we are. And we serve one who died but didn't stay in the grave. We serve one who was resurrected and who was ascended 
and who was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. That's what we say in this assembly every single week. That's who we are. We are loyal subversives. And when we follow Jesus, he's going to lead us to make statements through our lives and in our words that go against prevailing trends and ideologies. And we've got to remind ourselves as we study Scripture and as we live Scripture, all these different ways in which our lifestyles and our attitudes and our words and our actions go against the cultural trends of any nation state from Rome to America because those kingdoms are earthly kingdoms. They are created by men and women to a lesser or greater extent consistent with certain biblical principles at times. Sometimes we get confused and we forget that they are the product of people and we're Christians. I know, I know you, you, guys, you guys already know this perhaps, but I think this is part of our work as Christians is to remind ourselves because I don't know about you, but I tend to get a little bit too comfortable sometimes and I get a little too, uh, my, our, I think, our identity. Sometimes we get confused about where it belongs we need constantly to remember. That's what Jeremiah did. He was constantly reminding them, you're in exile, but don't you become a full-on Babylonian. Right? You, don't, you don't do that. Your principles lead you to be subversive to the place where you are. I remember that. I don't know if you guys saw this movie a few years back. I don't know, six, eight years ago. Maybe, maybe Hacksaw Ridge. This is, don't, don't hear this as a full-on endorsement. Um, but the, but the principle of it has pretty, pretty graphic war violence, a World War II movie that tries to show the violence and all of its uh, ugliness, all right? So that warning about it. Here's the principle of the movie, though. The true story based on a guy, the character, the, the actor is Andrew Garfield playing the lead in, in the movie about this guy who in World War II, he went into the army, and um, because of his Christian convictions, he believed it was wrong for him to carry a gun. He believed that he could not take a human life. And so he wouldn't carry a gun. And, and, and he went through, through all of these, you know, they put a lot of pressure on him to carry a gun. He said, I'm not going to do it. You know, and he, and he, he was restrained. He was in a situation where, but, where he, he said, I'm not going to do it. You can, you can court-martial me. You can do whatever you're going to do. I'm not going to carry a gun. His Christian convictions, whether or not you agree with this outgrowth of Christian conviction, that's not the point. His Christian convictions led him to believe it was wrong for him to carry a gun and, and therefore be put in a situation where he might take a human life. Wasn't going to do it. Ultimately, they relaxed it and allowed him to go into battle as a medic. That's what he was going to be. I forgot that, but that's an important part of the story. He was a medic. And he went into battle, not carrying a gun, as a medic. And he saved scores of human lives. That's a good example, I think, of what I'm trying to talk to you about. In principle, right? Is that there will be times where, because of our com commitment to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we say, enough is enough. I will go with you so far to seek the welfare of the city, but I will not go past this line or that line and become someone who worships another God because my God is my only God and I will follow him no matter what. Be a loyal, subversive. 
is my challenge to you from Jeremiah and from 1 Peter. If you're not a Christian this morning, what we're talking about here, and it's a, it's a, serious, it's a serious stuff, you know. I, I hope you hear, if you're, you know, if you're not a Christian this morning, I know I've been talking to Christians for the most part, but I hope you hear in this, this message, and that is that becoming a Christian, it's not about joining a church somewhere. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not about coming to church on a Sunday and Sunday and Wednesday or whatever. That's not being a Christian. Being a Christian, biblically speaking, and I hope we, we communicate this through our lives as well, being a Christian is following Jesus, and, and it is, it's, a, it's a complete worldview change. It is saying to the world, Jesus Christ is my king, and, 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 and I'm going to serve him no matter what. If you're not a Christian this morning, what Jesus is inviting you to is to make him your king. It's to submit to him as king, to say to him, I am done with living life my way, and, and I want to know that you are in control of my life. You express that by saying you believe in Jesus as God's son, turning away from your past and committing to him publicly in baptism as his blood washes your sins away. See, we're in exile, and the whole idea here is that we're living temporarily in this world as it is. God's going to make everything right at some point. God's going God's to make us at home, and I can't wait for that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we're loyally subversive to the kingdom of this earth. If you're ready to submit to the king this morning, we invite you to come. If you need to come back for prayers, we invite you to come. Let's stand. Let's sing.